Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric O'Connell. I'm the youth director here at Hillside Community Church, and if the tie wasn't already a dead giveaway, um, yeah, this is the first time I'll be preaching, and I'm honored and I'm blessed to be here in front of you guys this morning. Um, and after the, the football game on Thursday against Council, um, I've been told that if I mess this up, I for sure have to move back to California. Um, so if you guys could please just during it, you know, maybe give some approving nods, maybe a couple amens in the back rows, I'd greatly appreciate it. I don't want to move, so <laughs> obviously I'm kidding. But uh, last week uh, we continued in our sermon series in Genesis, a uh, sermon series called Beginnings. And next week we'll begin our uh, preaching and teaching time in Advent. But this morning we're going to look at a text in Second Corinthians. So let's just jump right into it. Second Corinthians uh, 4, 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Now, from an initial reading and seeing it, a uh, cu- couple things you might notice. Uh, this might have been a memory verse for you growing up. It might be a memory verse for you now. Uh, if you see the jars of clay, you're like, oh, I know that band. I don't know if they make music anymore, but they were a popular Christian band. If you're like me, I was a VBS junkie at my, when I was an intern at my old church, and I think of the middle part and their songs, and I think of all the motions, and I want to start jumping around and singing on stage. Um, but you also may notice the, a couple of references to death, a couple of references to suffering, to hard times. Uh, and in those references, there's also, it, it's not explicitly said, but some comfort, some hope some power maybe in those times of weakness. And, and that's where I want to focus our time this morning. I think that's an odd pairing to, to say that there might be comfort and there might be hope and power and death and suffering in hard times. But in order to properly understand the depth of what Paul is saying, because I think it's deeply profound and I think it's so amazing for our lives today, we have to understand the culture that Paul's in. We have to understand the circumstances, the situations that Paul finds himself in as he writes this letter to the Corinthians. So let's take a moment to do that. Um, Obviously, 2 Corinthians, I'm sure you could guess it, uh, was written to the Corinthians who were located in Greece. Uh, Corinth, it had a lot of poverty, okay, it was full of extreme poverty, but also had a lot of wealthy and prosperous groups. Uh, and we're, we're, this will be important to note in a little bit. So just know that there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of poverty, but there was also some who were wealthy. It is a sequel, again, you guessed it, to second, or to 1 Corinthians. And, and if you're like me, maybe you think that, you know, the early church, you know, it, it was so successful, it grew so rapidly that they must have all been getting along. They must have all been sitting around a fire singing kumbaya all the time. But it, that's not the case. They're, they're normal people. They're just like us. And they, they didn't get along sometimes. And the, the first letter to the Corinthians that Paul wrote was kind of controversial because what he was saying to them was he was noticing the way they lived their life. And he said, you're so full of worldly aspirations. Your desires are so much for the world and not enough for God. And you need to pursue God and stop chasing the world. And because the Corinthians were normal people like us, they didn't really care much for someone rebuking them, and so they rejected it, and they really rejected his, device, uh, his advice as authoritative. So there's a little bit of drama going on. And to make matters worse, Paul is dealing with a group called the Super Apostles. I swear to you, I did not make that name up. Um, this really is a group that's found in the Bible. And so we're going we're gonna, to uh, take some time to look at the Super Apostles. Not too much, but it is important to note notice who they are and what their role is. They are mentioned in other areas of scripture. In fact, Paul himself, just to show you that I'm not messing around, 2 Corinthians 11:5 says, I do not think I am the least inferior to those super apostles. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. 
Uh, and in other areas of Scripture in the New Testament, John and Timothy encounter them in Ephesus. Peter exposes them to other churches. Jude, James, and the writer of Hebrews warn the people in the church about them. Uh, Titus opposed them on Crete. So all this to say this is a real group of people. They're found throughout the New Testament. And what we see is they actually give the early church quite a bit of trouble. Um, they're, they're not really, they don't help the cause. They actually hurt a little bit. And we're going to see why. Uh, what we find in scripture is that they were actually viewed as apostles in the church. And what, what I mean to say by that is they, they, people recognized that they had authority. They recognized that they could teach. When they were up on stage, they said, okay, that's a pastor. That's someone who can preach and teach the Bible. But the unfortunate part was that they weren't really capital A apostles. Okay, they didn't spend time face-to-face with Jesus. They, they, they weren't like Paul and Peter who, who learned from Jesus and then took that message that they learned from Jesus and went to other people. So they, they were apostles, but they weren't really. They, they, they weren't real capital A apostles. But what was, what was the troubling part was that they taught a different message than Paul did. Okay, they, they taught a message that accommodated their times. They said, here's some issues that we're dealing with and we need some justifications for why we're doing these things. So uh, we're going to tailor the message to, to make sure that we can justify what we're doing. They made it easier to believe in Jesus. And, and they did that by, by, they didn't really follow, they didn't require their followers to really turn away from their sin. They didn't put a high emphasis on repentance, um, w- which obviously we need for the forgi- forgiveness and cleansing of our sins. They didn't really force them to deal with conflict. If they saw a brother and a sister or people, you know, having conflict that could potentially divide the church, they didn't say, listen, if we, if we want to be a healthy in, uh, community, if, if, if we want to grow in Christ, we need to forgive each other and reconcile. They didn't really force them to do that. But more importantly, they preached a, a different gospel, one that wasn't true. Some scholars say that they preached one that said, listen, you can practice your faith in any way you so desire, uh, just as long as you're practicing your faith somehow. Kind of a your truth is your truth kind of practice of faith. But other scholars say that maybe what they're teaching was, was, you know, you can have faith in Jesus, that's all great, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to follow these, uh, the, these Sabbath rules. You need to eat these certain types of meats. Whatever they were teaching, it wasn't the true gospel, and that was Paul's biggest problem with these super apostles. They served themselves and not the church. What they would do is they would charge a large fee for their services to come and preach in front of a congregation, to love and to serve a congregation. Don't get me wrong, we get paid for what we do here at church, but they were paying a very, very large fee for it because they were super apostles, not regular apostles. And they were concerned with gathering followers rather than encouraging members to submit to the church and to be a part of a community and, and to actually, to, to be a part of a, a larger worshiping community. They were saying, follow me, not the church. It's all said and done, they looked pretty and they spoke well. Kind of looked like that. And so if you have a teenage daughter, you know who those people are. Um, if you don't, that's okay, don't worry about it. Um, but they looked pretty, they spoke well, they were charismatic, people liked them, they looked at them and said, that's who I want to be. Okay, they, they, they were people that were, they just looked pretty, they spoke well. But now, let's look at Paul. Okay, so when we think about Paul, we think about this, this giant, this, this superman of the Christian faith. And rightfully so in some terms, because if it wasn't for Paul, uh, we wouldn't have the rapid, oh, I'm not going to say that, but it, Paul was very largely responsible for the rapid expansion of the early church. He was largely responsible for Western Christianity as we know it today. Okay, so he, what, he did a lot of crazy things, and the stories in the Bible about Paul, sometimes just absolutely unbelievable. He, he did some pretty amazing things. So 
But here's the reality is none of us saw him. None of us know what he looked like. But we read his letters. That's all we have. So, so because he is just this giant in, in, the, in the ways that he acts and in the, in the miracles that he performs, sometimes when we think about Paul or when we cast him in movies, we think of someone like this. Someone who's strong, someone who's, who's handsome and bold and someone who's, who's charismatic, someone who's uh, figured out life and how to be successful in it. Really, what we, we, we see someone like a Brad Pitt kind of person. And, and really, when it's all said and done, we sometimes might think of Paul as really Superman, this guy that is almost invincible. Okay? Yet we read in 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, this is Paul talking about himself, about what is being said about him. His letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Paul really wasn't that big of a deal, apparently. When you saw him, you're like, wow, that's Paul. And when he spoke, you're like, geez, that's not the guy that writes those letters. He can't even speak that well. And in fact, there, in one of, an ancient document whose author actually saw Paul face to face, this is what he had to say about Paul. He said, and I saw Paul coming, a man little of stature, thin-haired upon the head, crooked in the legs, of good state of body, with eyebrows joining, and nose somewhat hooked full of grace. Now, I love that last part because I, I think it's the modern day equivalent of someone setting you up on a blind date and saying, hey, how'd it go? Like, tell me, was he cute? Was this and that? Like, you know, he was a great guy. He walked kind of funny. Um, he had a he really big forehead. Uh, I, hygiene wasn't very important. He had this unibrow. His nose looked really weird. Great personality, though. I mean, fantastic personality. And I feel like that's kind of what this guy was saying about Paul is, Man, if you can just get over the fact that he walks a little bit goofy, um, he doesn't talk very great, he just looks weird. But he is full of grace, absolutely full of grace. We love Paul. Um, so in reality, this is probably what Paul looked like. Nothing too impressive. Uh, big old forehead looked a little bit goofy, maybe a little bit leprechaunish. I don't know. Um, probably old, but really when it's all said and done, this is probably what Paul looked like. Something like that, all right? So that, that's probably, you know, the person who we base a lot of our Christian beliefs on, that's probably more likely what he looked like. Uh, but that's okay. <laughs> and all of this becomes very important to know as we realize the kind of culture that the Corinthians lived in and the, the, the culture that Paul is preaching to. You see, he was preaching to a culture that was primarily concerned with honor and shame. And today in our Western civilization, in our Western culture, we don't really recognize how big of a deal this was because we're highly individualistic. Okay? We think we re- that the world revolves around us because that's kind of what we've been taught. That's kind of the way we've, we've grown up is our needs are first. We have a high value on personal freedom, the choices that we make, the jobs we pursue, the friends we keep, sexual orientation, our spouse. And to take away freedom, personal freedom, is one of the biggest injustices in our culture today. Sin is defined in terms of guilt. Your sin did this. Your sin did that. And you need to be cleansed and forgiven. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But we we tend to forget how our sin actually affects the larger community that we're in sometimes. And that's the culture we grow up in. Not so for the honor-shame culture. For the honor-shame culture, the group was far more important than the individuals that made that group up. Okay, and, and how you were viewed in that group was of the highest importance. Honor was the highest commodity to, to, to seek after. If you didn't have honor, it was really bad news. And you received honor through first and foremost public acknowledgement. What family were you born into? Who were your friends? How much money did you have? But more importantly, how could you display that to everyone around you? 
And, and if you could display it well, you had honor. Chasing after virtues such as strength, courage, wisdom, and generosity, if you could excel in those areas, man, you had honor. And if you didn't, you had shame. Lastly, interactions outside the family. Things like gift giving, invitations to dinner, where you would sit at the table at those dinners, marriage arrangements, business, all of these things either contributed to or took away from the amount of honor or the shame that you had. And what was unfortunate was that to be without honor ultimately meant you were without identity. To not have honor was one of the most shameful things and it meant you didn't have an identity. If you didn't have honor in this culture, you were marginalized. So we see people like the lepers, like the slaves, the poor people, women, unfortunately. They didn't have very much honor in this culture. They had a lot of shame. And so they weren't really seen as people with identity. They really weren't worth the dirt that was on the bottom of their feet. Now, some of you may look at this situation, these super apostles, this honor-shame culture, and say, how stupid is that? How trivial? How black and white? How can you put people in these categories, this and that? Well, what I want to say this morning is that I, I think we're not that much different today. I don't think we're that far off from the Corinthians. You see, the, the Corinthians, they, they idolized, they valued elevated status, but they idolized and valued it and, and put it up on a pedestal because that's not who they were. They weren't these super apostles. They looked at these super apostles and said, that's who I want to be. That's who I want to be. And these super apostles that are mentioned, it's not like they're dead and gone. We have them here today in America. Folks, the largest church in America today, their head pastor would fit into the super apostle category. He, he's a very good looking dude. He can talk very well. He talks about the cars and the wealth and the health that you can get rather than the blood that was shed for our forgiveness of sins. And people flock to that. Thousands of people in our churches, they, they, they're so attracted to the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and wellness gospel. And it is so much more appealing to know that Jesus can give you a car, that Jesus will save you from cancer, that Jesus will give you lots of money and success, rather than Jesus telling you you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and sacrifice like he did. And a lot of people are attracted to that message, but it's not the true gospel message, even a little bit. This is not just an exclusively ancient problem. This is a now problem that we're facing here today in our churches. But what I want to do for a second is I want to take it outside the realm of the church because I, I don't think it's an exclusively church problem either. I think this is a problem that we deal with on a daily basis. Please, this morning, raise your hand if you woke up this morning and said, if I can be as average as possible in the, whatever I do, that would just make my day and it would be incredibly fantastic. Daniel, Fantastic. <laughs> Okay, except for Daniel, um, I don't think any of us wake up this morning or, or any day really and say, man, if I could just be an average employee, if I could just be an average friend, man, if I could just love my husband or my wife just right down the middle, nothing less, nothing more, if I, if I could be the parent that just gives my kids exactly, like just almost exactly what they need but never what they want, um, if I could be just an average youth group volunteer, an average children's ministry volunteer, an average coffee break leader, man, that would be fantastic. No, we don't think that way because we want to be the best. We want to be great. We want to be the people that other people look up to. That's who we want to be. And I think rooted beneath that is this great insecurity that I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. God can't love me as much as the people who are better at what I do than me. I, God, 
that's not how God works. I'm not good enough. I can't be used. And folks, I'm the exact same. I go to seminary, and I'll tell you what, um, uh, this whole insecurity is, it, it's looking me in the face almost every day. I, I, I go to seminary, and I, I learn Hebrew and Greek with people, and I see people catch on to it so much quicker than I do. Man, if I could just be smarter like them, I, I would be a better leader. I, we, we have people preach in our classes, and I see people preach, and I go, man, if I could just preach like them, I would be able to lead a church so well someday. I see people have this passion for New Testament and Old Testament history, and I go, if I could just m- mimic that passion, maybe I could inspire that same passion in other people. This is not an ancient problem. This is a now problem in the church and in our daily lives. While we have a different culture, while we have a different set of values, uh, we still long and desire for the same things that the Corinthians did way back then. You see, what the Apostle Paul does is he comes and he speaks to the Corinthians and he speaks to them and he says a word that is very applicable to us today. He says, you guys, wait a minute. This whole honor-shame thing that you have, it's so backwards, it's silly. It's so backwards. He comes and he brings the message of Jesus Christ, which is the most shameful message to a non-Christian audience. It's the most shameful message in an honor-shame culture. Jesus was a homeless man who walked around and was dependent on the money of others for his ministry. Women! That's what he was dependent on. Jesus spent his time with sinners, with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with the lowest of the low. Jesus died in the most shameful of ways. Crucifixion, reserved for the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst. And that's who Paul followed in this culture. And he said, it's totally worth it because Jesus died and he resurrected and he, co- he covered me with the blood of the lamb and he saved me from my sin. And you guys have got it all wrong. In fact, it, it's, n- it's not the first who are first. It's actually the first who are last and the last are first. You get honor because Jesus gives you honor and you don't have any shame because Jesus covers that up. You see, strength, wealth, courage, and wisdom, they're not evil things, but they're not important. That's not what gives you honor. No, grace, forgiveness, generosity, love, joy, peace, the fruits of the Spirit. Now those are what's important. When the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and he takes residence with inside you, when God makes you his representative to the world, you then become the pinnacle of honor in any culture. The Holy Spirit, the things that God puts inside you, that transcends culture. That transcends human standards of honor and shame. That is what is important, not what humans say is important. And in fact, those things that God puts inside you, the Holy Spirit, it's so valuable, it's so important, that it's like treasure. It's exactly like treasure. And then when the Corinthians heard the word treasure, they said, hold on a second, what would you say? That'll give me honor. What's what's this treasure all about? Now let's return to the text. 2 Corinthians 4-7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. In jars of clay. How peculiar and strange is that? Why in the world would God put such a valuable treasure in such an unimpressive vessel? Why in the a, a treasure that is transcendently honorable, a treasure that is so immeasurably valuable, why in the world would he put it in clay? Why wouldn't he put it in a, in a, steel of, of st- in a vessel of steel? Why wouldn't he put it in a vessel of bulletproof glass? Why wouldn't he put it in anything other than a jar of clay? Clay is so unimpressive. Clay is so unattractive. It's literally dirt. 
you feel like you look at it wrong way and it's going to break. Certainly if you throw a rock at it, it's going to break. If you nudge it a little bit, it might break. Why would God do that? How irresponsible of God to put such a valuable thing, something that can bring you so much honor in such an easily fragile and breakable vessel. They would have known scriptures like Lamentations 4.2, how precious children of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, meaning they're worthless, the work of a potter's hand. Scriptures like Isaiah 30.14, it will break in pieces like pottery shattered so mercilessly. Scriptures like Jeremiah 19.11, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. Clay, pottery, wasn't impressive. It was easily fragile. Very, very breakable. It was not something that you would want to put something valuable. So why would God, of all people, put such a valuable thing in such an unimpressive vessel? Well, folks, I want to say it's because God chooses and uses the weak of this world for his purposes. God chooses and he uses the weak of the world. And I'm not saying he exclusively does that, but we look throughout Scripture And we see God choose weak people time and time again to do miraculous and great things. We saw what Paul looked like. (laughs) Nothing impressive, but Paul did some amazing things. And and, and why does he he do this? Well, it's to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and it's not from us. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Let's remember, God is a potter, folks. We talked about this in in our beginning sermon series. God literally gets down on the ground and he puts his hand, the relational Yahweh God, and he makes mankind in his own image out of dirt, out of clay. In the Garden of Eden, I'm sure that dirt was not the only thing there. I'm sure there were trees. God could have easily made us out of bark and that would have been more sustainable than clay. I'm sure God could have rounded up some steel, some bulletproof glass, and made us out of that, but he chose not to. It wasn't a mistake. It was a very intentional choice. That's because God knows our hearts. He knows about our desire to be great. It's been this way since the fall. When there were two people, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, what was their sin? They wanted to be like God. They saw God and said, that's who I want to be like. I want to be great. I'm not okay being just who I am. I want to be like God. I want to be the best. And God knew that that wasn't a sustainable way of life for us, not by a long shot. So ultimately, God puts this treasure, this immeasurably valuable, honorable thing, in such unimpressive vessels so that we won't get confused about who is really important. Because I think that we often do. I think we often do. I think we have this tendency to think we're more important than we actually are. I think it's a huge temptation for us in any, way, any place you work, whether, it doesn't matter where it is, but to think, we've been told as, as from children that we need to be leaders, that we need to get people to follow us and not be a follower. And, and I think that is our temptation, is to say, how many people can I get to follow me? Even in ministry, for me, it's very tempting for me at times to say, how many disciples of Eric can I make? It's very, very tempting for me to do that. But, but what God says is, if, if, if you live into your identity of who you really are, And if people really see you for what you actually are, which is how I designed you, they'll see that you are just a jar of clay. You're easily breakable. You're fragile. And so that means any successes that I experience, if I experience them, I'm hoping that people would say, Eric's not the one that's important. It's actually God. And when I fail and God still succeeds, I'm hoping people will say, Eric's not the one who's important. He's not impressive at all. It's actually God who's the one that's impressive. 
God uses weak vessels to show how great and how awesome he is. And, and we often forget about where we, how we got to where we are today. It's been said that you don't realize how much God blesses you until you have to pick it up and move it to a new address. Um, we think that you know, we are the, our, our own providers. We think we're the ones that make our own success, our own destiny. Uh, and we forget sometimes, we brag about ourselves and sometimes we le- forget to leave out the more unimpressive details. Uh, as I was talking with Ron this week, as I was preparing this, he talked to me about uh, a Bill Hybels quote, or a Bill he- what, something that Bill Hybels said that I just thought was so profound, and it was so right on for this message this morning. He said that if one by one, each one of us started to stand up and talk about our greatest successes, um, our greatest feats, our greatest accomplishments, how awesome we are, one by one, if we started doing that, we'd be more divided than we've ever been before. If I came over to you and said, I am the smartest student in seminary, I promise you. My wife, man, she loves me so much. I'm such a great husband. You know, I actually, I do my job better than all of you. I'm the best youth director in the world. I am the second coming of the Apostle Paul, I swear to you. If I said that, you would all be like, and, I'm sh- and I would hope you'd be like, Eric, you can go kick rocks, man. Like, that's... And what you, you'd be like, what is your problem? And then what you'd also do, if, if you're like me, you'd start to get competitive and say, hold on one second. If you're so great, I'm great too. And let me tell you how I'm great. Let me tell you how great I am if you're going to do that. We'd be divided. But if one by one we all started standing up and talking about our greatest weaknesses, the areas we failed the most, the areas where we just are so incredibly weak, fragile, and like vessels of clay, we'd be more unified than we've ever been before. If I stand up for you and said my dad was killed when I was 18 years old. If I stand up here and said that I love my mom dearly, but man, has our relationships gone through some rough times. And it's, yeah, it's gone through a lot of up and downs. If I were to tell you that I love my sister dearly, but she just makes so many unwise decisions sometimes, and it breaks my heart to the point of grief. If I were to tell you that my lovely wife right here, who's 23 years old, has already battled with cancer. And we're not entirely confident that it's the last time she ever will. If I were to tell you that I can be a pretty rotten husband sometimes, that I don't love my wife the way that I should, that I don't respect her the way that I should sometimes. If I were to tell you that sometimes I I forget about my identity, that it's really in Christ and that it's not in my grades, and it's not in the people, how people view me. Heck, I could even tell you that I've messed up a lot of times in my job already, whether or not you've seen it. And uh, I'm not perfect even a little bit. All those things are true of me. And when I tell you that, at least one person here can say, I know how that feels. I know what that's like. And we become unified, and we become community. Really, what this passage is all about is it's all about grace. God created us to be broken. God loves people who are broken. Why would we try and be anything different? When we try and be something that we're not, which is an easily breakable, fragile jar of clay, when we try and be a vessel of steel, of bulletproof glass, and God puts his grace, his love, his joy, his mercy, the fruits of the Spirit inside of us, and we try and be strong and we act that way, how is that supposed to ever spill out of us and reach other people and other people feel that? But when we become comfortable with who we are, which are broken, unimpressive vessels sometimes. In those times of weakness, when, when our vessels start to break, uh, that stuff that God puts, the grace, the love, the joy, everything that is so great about what God gives to us, it, it starts to, to flow out and other people start to feel it. Other people start to see it. And they don't see how impressive you are. They say, man, God is an amazing God that does so many great works in such unimpressive people. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that after the sermon, I'd like you all to go out and try and get hit by a car. 
so that you can show how weak you are and then you can show how great God can heal. I'm not saying that. Um, I'm not saying that God wouldn't heal you, but please don't do it. Please don't. (laughs) I I would hate for that to happen. I'm not saying that you can only ever be weak. I'm not saying that God can only exclusively use weak people. What I am saying, we don't take joy in weakness because it does hurt, because it is uncomfortable, because it's not fun to deal with. We don't rejoice when it happens, but we own it. And we allow ourselves to be comfortable with it. We don't run away from it. We welcome it because we know that this is a chance for God to work in us in a mighty way. And why do we own it? Because God will not allow us to be destroyed by it. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. You may find yourself in a really hard time, an uncomfortable situation where it's not your first preference. You might find yourself where you're in a minority in your beliefs, where you're not the best at what you do, when you're fearful of having shame instead of honor. But God will not allow you to be crushed, despaired, abandoned, or destroyed. No, in fact, he gives us this amazing opportunity that Paul talks about in verse 10. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What an amazing responsibility that God gives us. He allows us to share in his sufferings, to share in the ways that he went to the cross for us. He allows us to be weak and to be fragile so that ultimately we can share the gospel message of life and abundant life to everyone that we come in contact with. What an amazing responsibility. What God does is he uses our weaknesses to reveal and to reflect the glory of his son Jesus Christ to everyone around us. And that is an amazing responsibility and it should come as no surprise that to reveal and reflect God's glory is not a simple task. Jesus himself says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Sounds a lot like what the Apostle Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians. It's not easy, it's not safe, but when we're faithful, man, the results are amazing. I've asked uh, someone for their permission, Jackie Hookwater, to share this story. This summer, uh, I called her a week before we had to go on our mission trip, already putting her in a vulnerable spot, just cold called her and I said, hey Jackie, would you like to come on our mission trip with us and be a leader? And she graciously said, I would love to, I can't come for the week, I can come for the weekend, which was our camping trip. And when she got up there, she said, Eric, this is not what I do. I don't like camping. I really don't. This this is not my comfortability. But you know what? God called me to it, and I want to be faithful. And how awesome was that? She put herself in a place of weakness. I'll tell you what. God shined so brightly through Jackie that week, and I guarantee you, I know for a fact, she changed some students' lives that weekend, all because she allowed herself to be weak. There's a young woman a week before the, or two weeks before the trip that wanted to go and said, Eric, I'm, this is not what I do. I don't do these types of things. But she went in faith, and I saw God work through her in such an amazing way. I saw God, I saw her go so close to God that week. It was so evident, all because she allowed herself to be weak. Every single one of those students there on that trip put themselves in weakness, in weak areas. They put themselves in vulnerable and fragile areas. And, and what happened? God's presence went down to the the city of Grand Rapids and it was felt and it was seen and you guys saw it. We went down to the Omega House and our hearts broke, broke for the cause of the unborn child. And we came and we shared our hearts and you guys saw that God did a work through the student, through the lives of our students this summer, all because they allowed themselves to be weak. 
It's not students exclusively. It's even Jesus. Jesus, before he went up to go die and take our sin, he even said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Saying, God, this is not my first preference. This is not my first preference. If there's any possible way to get out of this, please, but let your will be done and not mine. And then John 19.30, as Jesus is up on the cross and in his weak vessel, we can see the cracks in his jar of clay. We can literally see the wounds that have pierced his side. And as he's on the cross, he says, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Has anyone ever been so weak in the history of humankind? But has God's glory ever shined so bright and so magnificent and so glorious when Jesus went to the cross, paid for our sins, and allowed us to be back in relationship with God? From high school student to mother to Jesus Christ himself, God uses people in their times of glory and successes, but even more so in their weakness. And he affirms this to Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Some questions we need to ask ourselves as we leave today. Will you allow yourself to be used by God? You are good enough. You can be used by God because God uses and chooses the weak of this world. Will you allow yourself to be used by God? Will you own your identity as a jar of clay? And in so doing, will you make room in your life for weakness so that you can make more room for God? Because when you do it, man, God shines so brightly through us and it changes the people that we come in contact with. Will you allow yourself to be used by God? Let's pray. Lord, we're just so grateful. God, and uh, we can do nothing but stand humbled before you. God is uh, jars of clay, as weak people. Lord, would you... Uh, Give us the strength, the confidence to run to you, God, and allow ourselves to be used by you. God, would you allow us to be people that can reflect and reveal your glory to all we come in contact with. God, would you, would you allow us to, would you give us the strength and the courage to, to not run away from fear, but God, to embrace situations that might not be comfortable, and God, that might not be convenient, that might not be our first preference. All, God, so that we can reveal and reflect your glory in the world and so that we can ultimately grow closer to you. And we pray. Amen.